welcome everybody to the Abide Project YouTube channel. Um, I'm here with one of my new favorite YouTubers, Redeem Zoomer, a guy named Richard. And then, of course, many of you watching this will recognize Aaron Vreesman, one of our kind of key writers and contributors at the Abide Project, a member of the steering committee. And we're here just to talk about something that's going on that you might not know about if you're watching this on YouTube or you're been paying attention to what's going on in the CRC. You might not have seen the Redeemed Zoomer on YouTube or the Reconquista movement, but that's what we're here to talk about. So um, I don't think we need to introduce ourselves being the Abide Project, but if you don't know in case, we are the Abide Project in the Christian Reformed Church, and we're seeking to uh, maintain historic orthodoxy around biblical sexuality within our denomination. And we're a few years into this project, and we have a website and a YouTube channel and a podcast. And uh, I'll let Richard introduce himself. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me on the channel. I really support your Abide Project because I'm trying to do something similar. So my denomination is the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA, or as most people know it, the liberal one. Um, so a lot of people ask, you know, if it's if it's so liberal, if it keeps drifting away from biblical orthodoxy, why don't I just leave and join something else? Well, that's kind of been what um, more theologically conservative people have been doing for the past hundred years. And I don't think it's really solved anything. I think it's just caused, you know, liberal ideology uh, to, to spread and it has caused orthodoxy to die out more and more. So the, the Reconquista, my Reconquista movement is trying to reverse that process. Uh, when conservatives leave a liberal denomination, it just makes the denomination get more liberal. So Reconquista is basically telling evangelicals to move back into the main line um, and to try and revive true biblical orthodoxy in the main line. So it's not really about so much what we're against. It's more about what we're for. We are for the Bible. We're for orthodoxy. And we're trying to build alliances of Bible-believing Christians in mainline denominations with the eventual goal of completely restoring our denomination to biblical orthodoxy. Similar to the Abide Project, although I would say the situation is much worse in my denomination, the PCUSA, the majority of church, not all of them, but the majority of the churches are LGBT affirming. Uh, there are heretics in the denomination, like people who deny the divinity of Christ or the resurrection, who uh, can get away with it. Uh, so we have a, a very big challenge, but I believe that, you know, if we're reformed, reformed and always reforming, are, we're called to reform the church, not run away from it. And following the examples of people like St. Athanasius, who uh, confronted heresies in the church, but didn't split off. They they stayed, they they stayed and fought, they reformed. And yeah, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay and tr and do what God has called me to do. Oh, that's wonderful. Can you share a little bit about like your own coming to faith and how you became Presbyterian and why when you became a Christian and Presbyterian, you went, ah, oh, this is a battleground that I want to live in. Right. So, um, I grew up in the New York public school, very secular environment. So I was not religious at all growing up. I was kind of anti-religious, very secular, very progressive. And I converted to Christianity when I went to a, a music camp in the Midwest where a basically everyone was Christian. I saw Christianity for the first time. I saw how much more loving and alive those people seemed compared to what I grew up with. I saw that Christianity was just was beautiful. I saw the goodness, truth, and beauty of Christianity that moved me to convert to Christianity. And I just joined the Presbyterian church back home because the director of that camp was a, a Presbyterian uh, music professor. 
So I, I just joined the Presbyterian Church. I had no idea that there was any of this, you know, progressivism stuff in the PCUSA. I just joined my local Presbyterian Church. And for a while, I, it was fine. I just enjoyed being at church. I was excited to be a Christian. Uh, but then, like, once we got this new uh, interim pastor who was very, very progressive, and she kept saying things that didn't seem like Christianity at all to me, I started to wonder what was going on. Then I did my research. I found out that PCUSA is one of those mainline liberal denominations. And at first, I uh, wanted to just leave. But then I had a mentor in my church who told me that this problem has been getting worse and worse, and it keeps getting worse the more people leave and run away and don't speak up. So he encouraged me to stay and to try and just stay stay loyal to the denomination, even if it's corrupted. But I didn't have much hope for the denomination until I got like a YouTube platform talking about theology, and I was like, maybe I can do something about this. So that's a very brief summary of my story. I wasn't always a Christian. I... My background is being a secular progressive, but now that I've converted away from that, I'm very devoted to explaining why it's wrong, especially for people who have a more, you know, secular or progressive background. If I may, how did you maintain an orthodox view in an environment that was was quite um, progressive? And how did even as a young Christian, how did you how did you do that? Only by God's grace, I think. Um, well, the more I was exposed to progressivism, the more I saw that it was completely fruitless. Uh, like my uh, the interim pastor, she told me to like investigate progressive Christianity, to listen to progressives like Richard Rohr or whatever. And it's like I, I looked at it with an open mind, but the more I looked into it, the more I saw that there was nothing there. It's they're, they're not preaching anything of spiritual substance. It doesn't disagree in any real sense from what the secular world is saying. It doesn't offer any alternative to the secular world. And I, I converted to Christianity because I saw how distinct, how holy and set apart Christianity and the Christian community was from the, uh, from the assembly of the unbelievers. Uh, so that's, it saw basically nothing distinct that we believe. The only, um, the only core doctrine is basically universalism and inclusivity of everyone and everything. The only thing you're not allowed to believe is historic Orthodox Christianity, pretty much. Um, so what got me to develop an Orthodox faith is seeing progressivism, honestly. Um, so that's why I, I don't think people who are in these progressive environments need to flee. I think they should walk further in, go, go out of their comfort zone even more, and get further sanctified by knowing what they believe by knowing what they do not believe. Very good. So what are some of your, like, how did you become, like, why did you start a YouTube channel? And why did you start a theologically oriented YouTube channel? Or what, maybe it wasn't always that way? It was. Um, so uh, I my generation is... It going to hell in a handbasket, let's say. Gen Z is really not in a good place. It's the most depressed and suicidal generation, and it's also the most atheist and non-religious generation, and that is not a coincidence. Uh, I just kept seeing so many dear friends of mine fall to, like, you know, leftism and secularism and the whole LGBT agenda, which I used to support, by the way, until I saw people go through it. 
um, like what what turned me against the LGBT movement was the LGBT movement. It wasn't some evil, bigoted, conservative Christian who turned me against it. Um, I just saw people go down that route. I saw particularly girls, honestly, most of my friends, just platonic friends growing up were girls. And I saw so much of them get sucked into this black void, this downward spiral. Um, and I was like, well, at least I have some Christian friends who are distinct from that. I had Christian friends that um, were had not fallen to that. Those were the friends from summer camp who sort of helped me convert. But then they got sucked into it as well. And I saw that the left takes over everything. They take over our churches. They take over our schools. They take over our universities. And then I saw them taking over the hearts of my friends. And that was one step too far. So I was like, I can't not do something about this. So I started a channel, uh, Instagram page, a YouTube channel just to try and like be an evangelistic voice um, and uh, more theologically oriented because I think that, uh, you know, we shouldn't try to have, you know, lowest common denominator Christianity. That's not going to have any substance or foundation. We should have, you know, deep intellectual Christianity as sort of a, a bulwark against the, the attacks of the devil. So because my friends went from Christian to leftist, I wanted to show the process can go in reverse with myself. That's why my name on Instagram is from leftist to Christian. Um, my name is Redeem Zoomer, but that's sort of my title on Instagram. And I'm also trying to, just like I went from progressive to Christian, I'm trying to help my denomination as well go from progressive to Christian. I think progressivism is just like a, it's a virus that hijacks everything, but I think we need to start making the process go in reverse. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> um, before we jump into the Reconquista movement, because that's really interesting, I want to hear a little bit about like what were, um, what were some of like the key people, books, podcasts, things like that that you listened to as a younger Christian um, that really kind of brought you up to speed on some of these stuff. Because I watched some of your videos. I'm in seminary. And I'm like, man, this guy definitely knows the stuff more than a lot of people around in terms of like, you know, your, your iceberg of reformed theology video was like, that was great. Thank you. Uh, so at first, my first introduction to reformed theology at all was Tim Keller. Like when I first heard that the Presbyterian church was Calvinist and I looked up what Calvinism was, I was freaked out by it. I wanted nothing to do with it. But then listening to Tim Keller and stuff that uh, helped me see the beauty of Reformed theology. And Tim Keller is very introductory level. He has more of a mere Christianity approach, but still, I wouldn't be Reformed if it wasn't for him. He got me to understand salvation by faith alone for the first time. Uh, so that was like a year and a half after converting. So then for a couple of years, I was just like vague five points of tulip type Calvinist. Um, and then when I got to college, I went to college in the South, and everyone in the South is Baptist, a very low church, non-denominational and stuff. And that's when I started to dig even deeper into Reformed theology. That's when I really saw the distinction between, you know, historic Reformed theology with the confessions and the, like, Reformed scholastics, the distinction between that stuff and modern generic evangelicalism. And that's when I sort of, I guess you could say, got high church pilled. Um, and for the audience who doesn't know what that means, um, that means developed an affinity for a more traditional form of Christianity. Uh, so that's uh, that's when I started to really study deeper. I read all the confessions. I, I saw that like the what's in our Reformed confessions, like the Scots confession, or I guess for you guys would be the Belgic confession, sounds basically Roman Catholic compared to most modern evangelical Calvinism. Um, it's not Catholic. It's just that um, 
the, the truth is that evangelicalism isn't really Protestant. It's more like just Anabaptist. Uh, so that's when I started to really dig deep into the historic theology. And I, I thought this was so interesting. I wanted to share it. So that's what I also started talking about on my uh, page and my Instagram page, my YouTube channel, all my other social media. So you asked about people. I only mentioned one person. So uh, Tim Keller helped me get into like basic reform theology. Uh, Jordan Cooper, a very uh, prominent Lutheran YouTuber, Lutheran pastor and YouTuber. He helped me understand like church history and stuff like that. N.T. Wright was also very influential on me in believing in kingdom theology, that our job as Christians is not simply to go to heaven. It's to spread God's kingdom here on earth and reconquista is really about fighting for God's kingdom. Reconquista is very influenced by N.T. Wright. So yeah. um, I'd say that Tim Keller, Jordan Cooper, N.T. Wright, those have been some of the biggest influences on me. That's awesome. I, I would I share like the Paul, same. I, yeah, I also like Paul Vanderclay. I know Paul Vanderclay is one of your guys, so I like Paul Vanderclay as well. It's <laughs> great. He's definitely um, got some great content around church and culture and things like that. I would say he's very kingdom oriented as well, but that's being reformed for you. Um, I would, I would share your affinity for the, for the um, confessions, my own kind of journey. I grew up reformed, but like my own kind of affinity for theology and call into ministry was not through personalities online. Like many young conservatives come in through Piper or MacArthur or whatever. Mine was through the Heidelberg Catechism of Belgian Confession. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate um, that. Yeah, I've, there's so many topics of conversation that I want to share, but, but let's go into Reconquista and share kind of the mission, the genesis of that, and, and why you chose Reconquista, even with some of the historical baggage that word comes with. Right. So now a lot of people, they confuse the Reconquista with the Spanish Inquisition. We're not mm -hmm. for the Inquisition. We're not for, you know... Uh, having like killing Jewish people or whatever. No, Reconquista, the, the literal meaning of it is retake. Um, Spain was Christian. It was conquered by Muslim kingdoms and then the Christian kingdoms conquered it back. That's all it was. It was is a centuries long campaign to just retake Christian lands. Something used to be Christian. It stopped being Christian. It became Christian again. And that's what we want to do with the mainline churches. They used to be Christian. They're largely not Christian anymore. We're going to make them Christian again. It also applies to like a lot of Ivy League schools. I want to do a reconquista of Ivy League schools. They used to be Christian. Now they're not Christian. They should be Christian again. Uh, so that's all that reconquista. That's what the name means. It's not meant to be anything violent or controversial. It's just a recognition that these institutions should return to what they were founded upon. Yeah. So what? What's um? How does reconquista? Um, operate like is there a building is there a website um, how does it what are the kind of the strategies key players like what does it look like good question so reconquista as a whole it's not like an official organization it's an alliance of uh, revival movements of conservative revival movements in each mainline denomination so there is a there is a reconquista movement in each of the seven mainline denominations so, but those specific denomination specific movements, those are more organized. Like I'm on the board of Presbyterians for the Kingdom, which was started just last year, me and two other guys. We started an official 501c3 nonprofit 
we have a website and all that. We have a lot of pastors who are helping us write a statement of faith. We're going to attend the General Assembly and all that. And I know that, like, the Episcopalian group is doing something sim uh, similar. And there's also the Reformed Revivalists of America. They're the uh, RCA, Reconquista group. I think they're making a lot of progress. They've, uh, uh, they wrote 95 theses to the RCA demanding a change, and it's uh, – They've spoken at some of the synods in RCA, so I think they're doing very well as well. Uh, so, and what are the seven mainline denominations for those who okay, don't know? So the seven mainline denominations are just sort of like the representatives, the mainstream representatives of each Protestant theological tradition. So we have the PCUSA, the Episcopal Church, United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, American Baptist Churches USA the United Church of Christ, and the Reformed Church in America, the RCA. And there's also okay. some denominations that could be called semi-mainline. Some examples would be the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Technically, they never split off from anyone. Uh, I would also say the, CR, the CRC. It's like, yeah, it split off, but it was like so long ago that the CRC really is a historic denomination, even though it's technically not mainline. And a few others, like you could say the Southern Baptist Church is semi-mainline as well. But we're focusing on specifically what the media considers the mainline denominations because all of them are historic denominations that also struggle with liberalism. So there's no there's no need for a reconquista in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod because it's conservative. Uh, there's and I think there's the CRC, the CRC compared to what I'm from is conservative. It's like yeah, there's some issues, but I think the CRC is doing a much better job at reforming itself than any of the, the seven sisters of the main line. Thank you. <laughs> That's good encouragement for those who are deep in the waters of the CRC is, and you probably, this is probably more unique to the CRC than some of those other mainline churches that like the CRC is so insulated in the sense that people grow up in it. They live in it. They don't really leave it. It's, um, that's and that's good. one of the one of the one of the challenges of it as well is because people's identity is more CRC than it is Christian, and that creates its own quirks and benefits and it's, also detriments. It's a uh, it's a Dutch club, if you will. There's a lot of people who are just CRC because they were born here, they grew up here, their their uncle teaches at Calvin University or the seminary, and they think that they belong here. Their grandparents built the church. And so they belong here, whether they agree with the confessions and our stances or not. And so I don't think that's, that's a bad problem. thing. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's like, if you have the heritage, embrace it. But, but what we have is that, is that we have people who have the, the biological heritage, but they don't hold to the, the theological heritage oh, or true. they are trying to downplay that. And so yeah, that's it, true. it's a Dutch club. Yeah. But, of all the uh, heritage-based denominations, I think the CRC the CRC has been doing a lot better than the mainlines because the mainlines are also based on heritage, but they have like zero enforcement of the confessions. Um, so there's that. That's good to hear. Yeah, it's also interesting. So like I'm Canadian CRC, so that changes it a little bit. Like we don't have the same mainline kind of delineation that America has. Like the CRC in Canada's. 120 years old instead of almost 200 years old, right? And we're mostly post-World War II immigrants versus, you know, 1850s immigrants. 
And so that changes the culture a little bit too. But of course, being a binational denomination, we latch on to a lot of that same identity stuff for good and bad. And we, of course, being Canadian next to America, we also are so affected by all of this mainline liberalism slide and, you know, all of it. So it's, it's interesting to see how we're different, but we're also just so attached to it. You can't not deal with it. Right. So um, when it comes to the Reconquista, what are, what are some of like the notable moments or success stories that you've seen in there that kind of get you excited or encouraging? Well, our, our big stunt, um, there's a Christianity Today article about this. I'm not sure if you've seen it was um, on Reformation Day on October 31st, each of the seven uh, um, denomination-specific Reconquista organizations drafted 95 theses against liberalism to their respective denominations. On Reformation Day, they sent it, they sent emails to every church in their denomination they could find. They posted the theses physically on the doors of those churches. They did a lot of things, and a lot of pastors found out about the Reconquista because of that. A lot of the liberal hierarchies of like the Episcopal Church and the PCUSA and the ELCA were kind of scared of what we were doing because they've never seen such a strong conservative revival. And uh, we got a lot of media coverage from like Baptist News Global and Juicy Ecumenism and Christianity Today. So that basically caused people to know about us. It caused our reach to expand beyond just my YouTube channel. So okay. that was that was probably the biggest milestone for us. And also now we have a now we have like official nonprofits. Now it's official. Now it's not just like a an online club of a few nerds who are fantasizing about taking back the church. And so, like, so, so that I was would just imagine... go ahead. I was just gonna say that was just last Reformation Day, then twenty twenty three. Okay, yeah. so this is relatively recent that this has become okay. Yeah. Curtis. And I ima I imagine that that translated into a great deal of networking fruit like you have way more networks into different churches and pastors and things like that yeah there's pastors in every denomination that are on our side and so what does that translate into like i guess were there were there pastors that were just like ah this is some young upstart we don't really care or was the response from the pastors kind of the establishment pcusa pastors like really just positive yeah we're here with you let's go well, it depends. It's like the um, we got a lot of negative response from the more liberal pastors who called us a bunch of Nazis and stuff, just because, you know, m more like a, some of the liberal UCC pastors called us that. But from all the pastors that were just like regular people trying to shepherd their flocks, they were all very supportive of us. And we've gotten a lot of support from the pastors. So it's like we, we need to expect that the majority of pastors in denominations like mine are not going to be on board. But progressives were also a minority at one point, too, and they became a majority. So um, you just have to persist. So are there are... multiple? Oh. Sorry. I was no, saying there are multiple uh, multiple renewal movements within, let's say, the PCUSA. I've heard of yeah. a Presbyterian Fellowship. Do you do work with all those other groups? Sort of. So the um, there are renewal re renewal movements pre-existing in these denominations the problem the difference between them and us is they have the actual standing in the denomination they're a lot more official than us the thing is they have zero publicity nobody knows about them nobody outside the episcopal church knows about communion partners which is their sort of conservative renewal movement so that's why our reconquista movement is 
partnering with communion partners, the Episcopal Fellowship for Renewal is um, the Episcopal brand of Reconquista and they're partnering with communion partners. And they're actually gonna start doing the digital evangelism for communion partners. Now in the PCUSA, it's, it's similar because there is an existing conservative group that yes, there is the fellowship community and a lot of individuals within the fellowship community are also supporting us. However, fellowship community as a whole is a bit wary of supporting us because we're a lot more firm and bold and they I, they seem a bit timid compared to us. They're, they kind of try to really not poke the bear, so to speak. And we're a lot more like bulls in a china shop. Um, like, there, different conservatives will employ different strategies. There's the uh, be as diplomatic as possible strategy, and that's what the fellowship community tends to employ. But that's never what the progressives have employed. The progressives have always been just be as loud, bold, and radical as possible, and they've been the victors so we are trying to use the tactics of the progressives against them basically without anything sinful but have their level of boldness their level of being unapologetic and demanding change that's why i say what we're doing is activism uh because we're not just here to like huddle in a corner and hope nobody bullies us we're here for activism that, that's great that brings me to my next question is like what are the what are some of the strategic points of Reconquista, or maybe even more specifically within the PCUSA, like what are the, what are you working on right now, or what are the next steps to kind of continue that movement or build that movement out? Yeah, so Presbyterians for the Kingdom, uh, as far as all the Reconquista movements go, we have uh, the biggest emphasis on education and getting people through seminary. Uh, so we're partnering with Theology Matters. They're another renewal movement, but more of a seminary-oriented renewal movement, and they're, I think, a bit more uh, strong in their conservative convictions than the fellowship community. And we're partnering with them. Uh, the, a, a lot of those guys teach at Dubuque University in Iowa. So we're trying to just give them candidates to go to seminary. We're trying to get as many young men as possible through seminary and installed as pastors because the PCUSA has a very big pastor shortage. The problem is pastors in the PCUSA keep retiring and because of the pastor shortage, they're desperate for young people. So my guess is, as it stands now, the vast majority of PCUSA churches are going to close down in the next generation. I don't think we can stop that. But if we can inject as many conservatives as possible into the PCUSA before that happens, then in a generation, the conservatives are going to be the only ones left, and then they can take the wheel. That's, that's the plan. It's a simple plan. I did the math. It's going to work. The question is, are people willing to do it? I'm willing to do it. So when you say seminary, do you, like you have, do you send them through Princeton? Or do you uh, well, do outside of the PCUSA for seminary? Well, there's a bunch of PCUSA seminaries. Princeton is a, a bit difficult. I mean, I still, there is an evangelical fellowship of students at Princeton that I'm sort of secretly in contact with. They, they don't want to get hunted down. Um, but Dubuque is the main seminary where we try to encourage people to go to because we, a lot of the professors at Dubuque are allied with us. Dubuque is okay. also a PCUSA seminary. There's like seven or eight PCUSA seminaries. Um, and I'd say Dubuque is probably the most conservative and that's where we have allies. But really, we would encourage people to go to seminary wherever, whether it's even if it's outside the PCUSA, like Fuller or Gordon-Conwell, anywhere where they can get ordained in the PCUSA, basically. And there's even a friend, there's even a guy in our Reconquista who is going to RTS 
a PCA type seminary. Most of the time mm -hmm. you can't get ordained in the PCUSA, but these days they're so desperate for pastors that he's getting ordained anyway. So the more desperate they get, the easier it'll, it'll be to, to retake. I, I think we're seeing some of that in the CRC as well. If I think of like my classmates at Calvin Seminary and even some of the people that are coming in through, like we have this thing called the commission pastor where we can ordain kind of lay people with special gifting. A lot of the people coming in historically have been much more liberal, but we're seeing a much more conservative movement of students and commissioned pastors coming in, at least what, what I'm seeing. So the, the Roman, I think, I think the, the, the math works out. Yeah, the Roman church is also seeing the same thing. A lot of Romanist priests are uh, um, skewing more conservative. I think it's because these days people in my generation, people don't get involved in religion unless they're conservative, basically. Mm, there's not really a point otherwise as you said earlier the the progressive church doesn't have anything to offer yeah uh like it, um, in the boomer generation uh it was a social obligation to go to church but among gen z you only really go to church if you care about it and that's why there's so, a pull among the boomers to want to stay with the culture because the culture and the church back then were very connected and so there's yeah. kind of that influence there. But Gen Z, it's a whole different ballgame. Well, I agree the church and the culture should be connected, but it should be the church driving the culture, not the other way around. Agreed. Yeah, so so you have a great deal of hope for the PCUSA slash mainline churches. I didn't say that. I have conditional hope. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I, so like I'm, like when when it comes to eschatology, I'm not a post millennial or a pre millennial. I'm an amillennial because I think the future, as far as we're concerned, is up in the air. Of course, God has written every single thing that's going to happen. We don't know the ending of the story. As far as we're concerned, it depends on how how hard we fight. You know, if we give up and run away, yeah, the things are going to be terrible. Um, God's going to punish us for you know not being willing to take up the fight, but. If we're faithful, if we have faith, we have faith the size of a mustard seed. If we go in we go outside our comfort zone and trust God will be with us, then I think it's going to go great. I think it really depends on how much faith people have and how much people are willing to commit to this. What, at what point would you have to say, um, it's too, it's too bad. I have to leave the PCUSA. Or is I would one? say, um, now Jesus did say where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. So I think there can still be God's grace working through any church, no matter how liberal. I would, but I would still say if there comes a point where not a single PCUSA pastor is Orthodox, where not a single PCUSA church faithfully preaches the gospel, then I would say it's time to leave. But, you know, uh, God said to Abraham, if there's one righteous person in the city, I won't smite it. So I think you can say for a denomination, if there is one righteous congregation in that denomination, it's worth retaking. Even in the UCC, there are conservative congregations. Even in the Church of Sweden, the Church of Sweden that will uh, call you a fundamentalist if you pray to God instead of the United Nations. There are still conservative congregations there. So on that note, what would you say about conservative retreatism in, in our context in the crc we've we've suffered from conservative retreatism like every other reformed denomination or any denomination but we do yeah. know that there are churches who are 
you know, feeling that and they're going like, what do we like, what do we do? We've been in this fight for so long. Like, how would you encourage them? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, conservative retreatism is behind most of the problems of our day, I think. Um, if you look at it, the fundamentalist movement of the, of the early 20th century just told conservatives to do a blanket retreat. Retreat from the cities, retreat from the universities, retreat from mainstream science, retreat from mainstream everything. Just isolate yourselves, move to a farm, have 20 kids, and wait for Jesus to come back. That's not what the apostles did. The apostles went into the pagan cities of Rome. They were fed to lions. They went out of their comfort zones. Anytime you look at history, the more retreatist Christians have been, the worse things have gotten for them. Um, Christianity took over the Roman Empire by doing the opposite of retreatism. Uh, Reconquista is just do the opposite of retreat in every possible way. That means uh, retake the cities, retake the universities, but most importantly, retake the churches because the church is at the center of culture. I I think that if, if someone's retreatism is grounded in a few assumptions, either it's grounded in this idea that leftists and progressives are inherently stronger than Christians and will always win the battle, so no matter what, so you might as well leave, or it's grounded in like the same dispensational premillennial eschatology that drove the fundamentalist movement that retreatism is, I think, influenced by. So, yeah, I think conservative retreatism is behind most of the problems in our day today. I think uh, God punishes Christians when they are too scared to fight. In the book of Numbers, when the Christians were too scared to drive out the Canaanites from the Promised Land, the punishment was wandering in exile in the desert for 40 years. And I think Christians are in exile today because they haven't been bold enough to, to fight for the faith. They've sought out comfort zones and safe spaces. You know, conservatives make fun of liberals for wanting a safe space and being snowflakes. But in reality, it's often been the conservatives who want a safe space. And it's the liberals who are willing to go out of their comfort zone and to um, actually persist and conquer places that weren't previously friendly to them. So I think nothing is going to get better unless conservatives completely flip around their mindset from retreat to reconquista. So if I may, um, there would be some conservatives who would say things like, how could you stay in the PCUSA when the money that you are putting into the offering plate is going to health plans that include abortion coverage, for example? How could you, how could you be a part of something like that in good conscience? Yeah, you know, we pay taxes and the taxes go to things that are immoral, but Jesus doesn't tell us to not pay taxes. Uh, he tells us to be salt and light in the world and have a positive influence. So the, when it comes to the issue of money, especially in the mainline churches, the mainline churches have money no matter what. They have, they are sitting on piles of gold that have been donated to by generations and generations of faithful Christians. They basically stole Christian money. Uh, the, these people who donated their estates to the church would have would be rolling over in their graves to find out what their money is being used for. So we don't have to give the mainline churches any money. They already have that. So what we can do is we can either leave the mainline churches, and then once the churches die out, the buildings will just be sold to some strip club or mosque, and then the PCUSA will just use the money from that. Or we could participate and maybe donate a little bit of money to keep the lights on in the church, but with the, the end of actually reforming the church and stopping this practice. Because if we do not do anything, 
if we leave the church, then Christian money will be used to fund abortions and transgender surgeries, regardless of what we do. But if we stay, if we stay and fight, then there's a much better chance that we can actually redeem these donations that have been given to these churches over the centuries. What, what would you say to those um, who would say that's a matter of conscience, the church has done this, or they believe this, or they've, you know, they're not hard enough on these lines, whatever the case may be. Um, and they say, because of my conscience, I can no longer attend, I can no longer be there. Do you think that's a worthy reason, or you think they need to adjust something? Now, I apologize for not saying this out front. So an uh, the most common misconception about the Reconquista movement is that we're telling people to march into progressive congregations, which is not what we're doing. Uh, we actually need the progressive congregations to die out. We are telling people to go to conservative churches within mm. the main line. That's why our Reconquista map is a map of moderate to conservative mainline churches. Those are the ones we need to preserve and let the progressive ones die out, because once that happens, then conservatives can retake the denomination. So we specifically do not want people to go and support and strengthen progressive congregations. If someone is already part of a progressive congregation, they think they can still make a difference, by all means stay. But in terms of the new people we're trying to inject into the denomination, uh, we're telling them to go to the conservative churches within the main line. So that's what we're doing. And um, now, some people might say, I can't in good conscience be part of this denomination. Well, there's an important question we have to ask. Do, does the church exist for Christians or do Christians exist for the church? I think more of a, a Lutheran answer might be that the church does exist for Christians, but I think the more reformed answer is that Christians exist for the church. Um, we're soldiers for the, the kingdom of God. Um, so because of that, we shouldn't necessarily select the denomination that most agrees with us, but rather the denomination that most needs us. And I think the denomination that most needs faithful believers are these historic mainline denominations that were founded upon bi the biblical truths of the Reformation, but have gone astray from them and need to turn back. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's great. I think there's a lot of that conviction in the CRC, people who want to want to remain um, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, I have a question about your emphasis on historic churches, high church, low church. Um, where does that come from? Why is it important? How does that fit into your life, the Reconquista movement? Yeah, well, uh, part of the Reconquista, not all of it, but it's sort of a parallel to recovery of tradition. Uh, because there is a, a strong movement of people rediscovering classical Protestantism, people raised in very low church, non-denom evangelical churches, uh, where the theology is very surface level and the worship style is does not have like the traditional Christian beauty and stuff. And they once they discover tradition... One instinct they have is just to immediately go to Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. And it, that is completely unnecessary because Protestantism has just as much beauty and tradition as those other um, churches. But Protestant tradition is largely going extinct because most Protestant churches in the main line are either most, – most Protestant churches are either in the main line, which means they're traditional but not conservative – 
or in the evangelical churches, which means they're conservative but not traditional. So part of the Reconquista is trying to take those halves of traditional Protestantism and sort of glue them back together. Because in offshoots like the PCA or just other evangelical bodies, you'll have um, sort of an inwardly traditional Protestantism, but an outwardly very modernist Protestantism. And in the main lines, you'll have an outwardly very traditional Protestantism, but an inwardly very modernist Protestantism. So we want, um, if we're, I think Reconquista is the only way to revive traditional Protestantism as a whole, because yes, there are examples of traditional Protestantism outside the main line. I think the CRC is probably the biggest example there is uh, along with the LCMS, but it's rare. It's very rare and it shouldn't be rare. So in your experience, um, with Gen Z, because I guess you 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 are Gen Z, you live within that world, yes. Minecraft, YouTube, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you think that high church, historic Protestantism tradition, you think that meets the needs of what people are longing for? Yes. Now, when I say high church, it, there's multiple senses of the word. Like in one sense, I'm low church because I'm I'm reformed, but low church during the Reformation seems high church compared to modern evangelicalism. Um, yeah, great point. So I'll just say traditional as opposed to high church, because there is a, a Baptist church in the 1800s looks a lot more traditional than a Catholic church built today. So I'll just say traditional. I think Gen Z has been raised in a void of ugliness and modern chaos. So a lot of Gen Z is reacting to that by desiring order and tradition. Uh, and there is, there's a massive movement of people in Gen Z towards more traditional Christianity, but if we don't revive traditionalism and Protestantism, they're just going to all go to Rome and the East and a massive number are going to Rome and the East. Um, so I think it really does meet the needs. I think that my, one of my music professors says beauty feeds the soul. And that's very important. I think modernism had to experience a world without beauty to realize why we need it. I think evangelicalism, we had to experience a Christianity without beauty to understand why we need it. Because the only religion ever, aside from maybe like weird Gnostic cults or whatever, the only religion in human history that in which worship was not synonymous with objective beauty is modern evangelicalism. Goes against not just every other denomination of Christianity, but every other religion, period. Um, the, I, the concept of religion without beauty, religion divorced from objective beauty developed in like the last 60 years as a result of modernism. Yeah, I, I agree. Just postmodernism? I don't know, one or the other. Because, um, well, postmodernism, I guess postmodernism more so because it, it denies that beauty is objective. Because a lot of times the defense of not having beauty in worship is, oh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is, you know, completely bogus if you understand traditional theology. Um, right. Got it. No, I, I love this emphasis on beauty because it's something that I think has become so, like, in the progressive way, it's like whatever you think is beautiful is beautiful. And what you're saying is, no, 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 there is objective beauty. We can we can appreciate that, and we should lean into that because, of course, that comes from, you know, God. God Here's, creates beauty. Yes, 
The difference between objective and subjective beauty is the, per the power to persuade someone of something they don't already believe. Like an example is, you know, I'm Lithuanian, like a little bit of my heritage is Lithuanian. We have a little historic rivalry with, with Russia. But when I hear Russian patriotic music, even though I don't like it, I am forced to admit it's some of the most beautiful music there is, even though I don't like the message it contains. That's objective beauty, a beauty that has the power to persuade you, the power to move you to think something you don't already think. And a, another example, more relevant, is I used to be a leftist. I used to be committed to progressive leftist values. When I saw the objective beauty of Christianity, I was moved to reconsider it. It gave me the cognitive dissonance because I saw how much more objectively beautiful the things produced from Christianity are. It's something you'll see in my generation, especially when someone abandons Christianity and moves to the left. And often when they get involved in LGBT, they physically make themselves more ugly on purpose. It's weird. I think um, Calvin Robinson thinks there's a demonic aspect to it. And I, I agree. But it's, it's sort of taboo to talk about beauty as an objective thing these days, but it absolutely is. And it absolutely has persuasive power over the soul. So I just spoke with someone who's a boomer in my congregation just this morning, and he was talking about how we need to have uh, more contemporary music and more toned down sort of worship or more modern worship because we need to keep the young people and our congregation has seen younger families go to these evangelical non-denominational churches because they're more versatile in that way. How would you respond to somebody like that? Yeah, so boomers think young people like contemporary music. No, they don't. Um, young people like being around other young people. The only reason young people go to the contemporary service at a church is because that's where the other young people are. It's sort of like, um, and it's sort of like everyone's too ashamed to admit that they don't like the contemporary style. So it's like there's a, a Episcopalian churches that have a traditional style and it, they're bustling with young people. So I don't think what young people like is the contemporary style. It's the presence of other young people there. That's also the reason why so many people with reformed theological convictions will still go to some very lukewarm non-denominational church because there's other young people there. It's, it's really just peer pressure that's been going for the past 40 years. Uh, so I think if you went to like the young people service and you just said, we're taking away the drums and guitars and we're giving you a choir and organ, the young people there would be like, okay, this is new, but within two weeks, they would love the new style much better. So it's like, especially among young people who are not non-denominational, it's a myth that the, the contemporary style attracts young people. What attracts young people is a social community, but you don't need a guitar and a drum set to have community. It's true. Like if I think to like my time as a youth pastor and being a millennial, it's like the millennials, their Spotify playlists are Hillsong and Bethel and the contemporary stuff. The Gen Z, it's Shane and Shane, it's hymns. It's, you know, historic Christian music. That's what they want to listen to. And, yes. you know, and even, even if you like the contemporary stuff, it's like you get that, you can get that on your drive to work and Spotify easy. You don't need it at church. You can get it everywhere else. Yeah, like I think there is a place for contemporary style, like in uh, college ministry. It's not a church. It's not a liturgical service of word and sacrament. So, yeah, it's okay to sing some 
contemporary songs there. I think when it comes to like a liturgical service, there needs to be at least some traditional music. It's like some, sometimes there's like a mixed service. I found that mixed service usually means 90% contemporary, but you know. Um, I can tell that you have feelings about these things. I love it. Yes. Um, so for let's uh, maybe in the last little bit here, let's talk about your YouTube channel a little more than the Reconquista movement and help us understand, I think, because I think like people are going to click away from this video and say, oh, who is this guy that they just listened to for an hour? And the first thing they're going to see is like memes and comic sans and Minecraft videos. Yeah, so here's something everyone needs to know about my generation. We're kind of dumb, and we have no attention span. And I'm, that's not necessarily a good thing. It would be great if the average Gen Z person had the patience to, like, read long books about things. But generally, educational content on Gen Z, the, the most popular kind, is an oversimplified style. There's history YouTubers that will just make uh, a... a 10-minute documentary about World War II where everything's as oversimplified and cartoonish as possible because that helps Gen Z under understand things. And also Gen Z communicates in, in, in forms of memes and stuff. It's kind of like hieroglyphics. Um, and a lot of old people say they can't understand the memes. Come on, it's not hard to understand. It's not like we're talking in Morse code here. Um, you, you can probably get it as if you just look at it a little bit. But I try to just... Um, use the uh, humor and memes and very simplified stuff just to make sure uh, the message can get across. Because I'm a firm believer in the idea that if you can't explain something very simply, you don't understand it. So I try to like explain complex theological concepts in, in very simple words. Like most advanced theological words, um, you can uh, explain very simply. Like infralapsarian versus superlapsarian, in other words, nice Calvinism versus mean Calvinism. That's in one of my videos. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's what I try to do. I also, um, sometimes I, I play this video game Minecraft while talking about Christianity, but that's not my most popular content. That's just sort of, that. what it really is, is just a podcast with video games in the background. And I'm not the only one to do that. Um, so that's... Um, I guess that's what I get attention for because it's like the unique thing I do, but that's not what my most popular content is. What is your most popular content? The uh, short explaining videos. Like I made, I made the video "All Christian Denominations Explained in Ten Minutes." Got ten million views. Everyone saw it because everyone wanted a, a quick explanation on that. So my my short form explainer content that's what gets the views. And so what? How, so you as a as a YouTuber doing this, what kind of um, fruit do you see? Or is it, do you feel a little bit like you're just put, putting stuff out into the void? Well, I've gotten hundreds, hundreds of people say that um, they've converted to Christianity through my videos. And thousands of people would say they've uh, gotten a lot more religious or gotten more interested in theology and studying the faith. So there definitely is fruit. The fruit I really would like to see is I want to try and revive just the traditional Protestant churches. I want to help the church. I want my channel to be sort of just a funnel of Gen Z kids on the internet and get them into the church. That's what I really care about. Um, now, now, sometimes the, the stereotype about me is they'll, 
uh, they'll watch one of my videos and then they'll get into tradition, but then they'll watch an Orthodox YouTube video and then they'll convert to Eastern Orthodoxy. So I, I specifically want to help the traditional Protestant churches, but Christianity as a whole. So that's why in most of my videos, I'll link one of two maps, either a map to uh, conservative mainline churches for the purpose of Reconquista, or the historic churches map, which includes CRE, CRC churches for the purpose of just helping preserve traditional Protestantism. And have you seen, or have you heard like anecdotally from pastors or members of your network from these churches saying, oh, people have come into our church from your YouTube channel? Yeah. Wow. That's so encouraging to hear. That's pretty cool. Thanks. I, I do want to support the church in, in any way I can. So I always tell people like, uh, like I have a Minecraft server where people come build churches in the video game, but I always say it's not a substitute for church. You need to go to church in real life. Sometimes I'll even kick people off if they uh, refuse to go to church in real life. I've heard you say that because I've watched some of those videos and you also do something interesting where you shut the server down on Sundays. Yeah. Um, I, Sunday is the Sabbath, um, and you need to go to church. So it's not shut down all of Sunday, but it's just shut down Sunday morning because the majority of people are like Americans. So it's like you shouldn't be playing Minecraft when you should be in church. Or playing Minecraft in church. That would be bad, too. You should not do that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So some specific things to the CRC. Um, from what you know of the CRC, what would you say um, our our strengths are? Things that we should continue to capitalize on and and emphasize. Well, well, I'd say the strength is that the CRC has been relatively very faithful compared to the mainline churches. Um, I'd say it's the only like major historic reform denomination that hasn't completely fallen to to leftism. So. I think you guys are doing a great job. You shouldn't feel bad about anything in that area. You might There might be some discouragement. I know that there's some progressivism, but I was very encouraged. It's like Synod 2022, Synod 2023. Apparently that the liberals did not get their way and they're considering like leaving now. Is that true? There is some, the liberals did not uh, get their way in 2022 or 2023. There were a couple hiccups in some of those some of those synods, but uh, in general, um, we basically said that no sexuality, human sexuality, and orthodoxy on that is a deal breaker. It's confessional status, and we have to abide by that and follow that. And no, this is not something we can agree to disagree on. And that was All right. All right, that's great. I would just encourage you, I know that this happened in the United Methodist Church. The conservatives won the vote, the progressives persisted, the conservatives got scared and ran away. It was completely pathetic. I think the global Methodist Church was the worst decision in all of church history. So my advice to conservatives in the CRC is the progressives are going to keep trying to push something. Don't run away. Keep fighting it. Um, so I would say that, but I would say that that's the biggest strength of the CRC is they have standed firm on the confessions and that is really, really good. So the only weakness I can think of is, I don't know why this is. It seems that in America, the Presbyterian denominations are a lot more traditional than the 
reform denominations. In both the RCA and the CR, the CRC, I've seen some congregations that are basically like evangelical megachurches just with the denominational label slapped on it. I think uh, it, especially if you guys are sort of standing alone as that one conservative historic reform denomination, uh, I think a, a move towards a more traditional style uh, and a move towards more traditional theology, like don't try to beat non-denominationals at their own game. There's plenty of non-denominational churches. Don't try to look like non-denominational churches. Be your own thing. Be reformed. Be distinctively Dutch reformed and show people the beauty of the Dutch reformed tradition. I hear some people within the CRC complaining like, oh, we're too much of an ethnic social club. It's like, no, embr embrace the Dutch heritage. I would love to see that Dutch heritage. I'm not Dutch at all. I'm like Jewish and my ethnicity is nothing important to my religion, but I would still love to see that heritage emphasized and Dutch reformed churches in the CRC to be a place of like, you know, deep learning and contemplation and psalm singing, all that great stuff. So that'd be my encouragement to the CRC. Good to hear. No, that we will take that encouragement and we will, my wheels are already turning on, on, on those comments there. Um, I think we would want to encourage you as well to remain faithful and to persevere and to continue to uh, stand for the gospel, to preach it and to live by it, even in a, an adverse environment where um, that is not popular. I imagine you get a lot of blowback and a lot of uh, heat um, in your circles for what you're doing. Is that is that accurate to say? Yes, from all sides. People say I'm too conservative, too liberal, too high church, too low church, too Catholic, too Protestant, all that stuff. So how do you, so I think this is, maybe this would be a good place to kind of close off as we kind of discuss the more particularities of this, is how do you survive that? Because I think, as you said earlier, like people are, the conservatives are scared. We saw that in the United Methodist Church. We see it even in our, in our own hearts where it's like somebody raises the hammer of, you know, a mean comment and we kind of cower, right? So how do you sustain yourself through that? How do you, what would your encouragement be to people who are, you know, maybe feeling like I need to step out more? Right. It's not easy. And I can't say I've always done the best job. Sometimes like recently on Twitter, I've just gotten angry or on my discord server, I've gotten angry, but it's spiritual warfare. And like when something happens, the devil will use it either to, um, or the demons will use it either to tempt you to uh, lash out with anger or be discouraged or both. Uh, but, you know, having pastors praying for me, that's, that's important. Talking to pastors, that's important. I would say anytime uh, it's important for believers to talk to each other and pray for each other or people who are um, regular people like me to talk to pastors. So that'd be very important. And also com Holy Communion very important to sustain the faith in the midst of trials. Uh, but, you know, if, if you persevere in the faith, if you abide in Christ, there's, a, I, I, I don't want to quote this verse out of context, you can do all these things in Christ who strengthens you. Um, that verse is often used to like, for athletes to like do a, like a basketball shot. No, it means you can endure any of the trials if you're doing it in the name of Christ. Amen. Awesome. Do you have any final questions, Aaron? Or I think I got everything that I was uh, 
I was interested in. Um, yeah, the PCA. Um, they they have a lot of evangelical uh, evangelical influences in them. Yes. There's a lot of non-denom stuff in there. Um, uh, is that did you have that in mind when you when you thought that the Presbyterians are are more traditional um, than the Reformed or? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Um, the PCA is my favorite Baptist church. Um, so like, I would say the PCA, I, there's a lot of evangelical influence. Um, there's a lot of Baptist influence. Uh, I would say the PCA is kind of, it's all more or less pretty similar. Like there is diversity of style and beliefs, but I'd say, um, the PCA is just largely like a Baptist aesthetic with a, um, quasi like their theology seems to be like a mixture of presbyterian reform baptist but in the pca there's no like serious evangelical mega church type churches maybe a few here and there but i've noticed maybe more so in the rca than the crc but like in, in some of the dutch reform denominations it's like this is like this is not just baptist this is like non-denominational um so i think maybe in terms of theology in terms of theology, I think the Dutch Reformed denominations are a lot more traditional than the Presbyterian ones. Like, you won't find Zwinglianism in any of the Dutch Reformed denominations, and you will find that in the Presbyterian ones. Um, there, I, I'm sorry I said there's some Presbyterian pastors who treat the sacraments like they're just symbolic. That's a problem. Uh, but I think in terms of style, like, I know there's exceptions, but the average... Presbyterian Church in the U.S. seems just like a bit more of a traditional style um, than the Reformed ones, but again, there's there's so much overlap. Um, I don't th I don't think like I'm really talking about the average Reformed Church. I just just think there's like a weird subset of these Reformed churches that are like very. It seems like they're trying to be non-denominational churches. I just don't see the point in that. So a turn a turn towards historic orthodoxy traditional worship um is important for for the future of the church we see that in the gen z movement is kind of what you're saying to sum it all up yeah if all the denominations need to do that um the the ones who struggle with liberalism need to turn back to orthodoxy the uh things like the pca or things that are a bit more contemporary should turn back to traditional style and i think the crc which is sort of in the middle has a little bit of both they have to deal with i think both of those apply to the CRC. Awesome. Well, thanks, Richard, for coming on. Uh, we'll be sure to share your YouTube channel down in the description below. Um, it's been great chatting with you, and maybe we'll do it again in a year's time and see what's changed. Great. God bless. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. Richard.